For me, one of the most compelling arguments for the truthfulness of the Christian faith is its explanation for why the world and everything in it, including us, is both so beautiful and so broken. The beauty and goodness of all creation is one of the chief themes of Genesis 1 and 2 and really the whole Bible. God, who is beautiful and good and wise, made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, and that is why they are good and beautiful. Genesis 1 and 2 do not explain why, in the midst of all of that goodness and beauty, there is so much pain and calamity, brokenness, devastation, even death. But Genesis 3 does, and so does the rest of the Bible. If we are going to understand the brokenness and sin in our world, the things about our world that we know deep down are just not the way they're supposed to be. We need to know what went wrong, what damage has been done, and how it can be put right again. We're focusing in this series of sermons on what it means to be human. That's a pressing question today that is facing unprecedented challenges. Our understanding of what it means to be human is being um, attempting to be changed and pushed in all kinds of different directions. So far, we have focused on the truths that we are creatures created by God in the image of God, that we were made male and female, body and soul, and that all of that is good. We've been focusing on, in other words, the goodness of creation. But all along the way, I've been saying there is more to the story. We know that there's more to the story. We know that everything is not as it should be. Everything is not as it was in the beginning. Sin has messed things up. And I've been saying we would get to that. Well, here we are. We're going to talk this morning about how sin has affected God's good creation, and specifically us as human beings. Now, we're not going to focus on um, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, so much as we are going to focus on what the effects of that sin was, what the fallout, in other words, has been from the fall. We know in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed God's uh, explicit command. Right? We know that um, they then were ashamed. They sought to hide themselves from God. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And I am going to read some of what God said to them. In the wake of that sin, he came seeking them out in the garden, right? They heard the sound of his voice and they tried to hide themselves from him. And he called them to account and they tried to shift the blame for whose fault it was that they had sinned and done what God had told them not to do. So starting in verse 13 of Genesis 3, it says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now in that passage there are a multitude of consequences that come upon not only Adam and Eve, but upon the creation itself as a result of their sin. But perhaps the most clear and concerning consequence of Adam and Eve's sin is what happens just after these words are spoken. And that is they are sent out from the Garden of Eden never to return. They are exiled from not only the beautiful, perfect place that God had created for them to dwell in, but they are exiled more importantly from the place where they were able to walk in the presence of God. There are significant consequences, in other words, for their sin. Before they could, again, walk with God. They heard Him walking in the garden. They could enjoy the fellowship of His presence. But now as they are exiled from the garden, sent out east of Eden, as it were, they are cut off and that's a consequence that's not just for them, but when they have children, they're not going to be born in Eden and get a fresh start. They're born outside of the garden as well. And after Adam and Eve sin, if we have questions about, okay, well, how is this going to affect the people that come after Adam and Eve? Are, are there going to be consequences for them too? Are, are things going to change for all people? Or is this something that has only affected Adam and Eve? The, the story that Moses tells us in these early chapters of Genesis makes it really clear that the fallout of the fall is going to touch everyone. So after Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3, we don't have to go very far before in Genesis 4 we have the first murder. Cain kills Abel. By the end of chapter 4, there's a man named Lamech who's taken two wives, contrary to God's design of one man and one woman. He also has killed a man who struck him and seems to be boasting about it. When you get to Genesis chapter 6, just before the story of the flood, Genesis 6-5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see that on the news still today, all the time, right? He goes on a few verses later in Genesis 6, says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So we're only a few chapters in to the story that Scripture is telling of the beginning that God made so good, so perfect. Everything was good in Genesis 1 and 2. And then Adam and Eve distrusted God, disobeyed God, 
And the floodgates of sin and death were opened so that now there's corruption, there's violence, there is abuse, there is all kinds of sin and destruction going on in the world. And that's why God brings the flood upon the earth. And He saves Noah and his family, but after Noah and his family come off the ark, it's clear that the flood, though it wiped away most of humanity, did not wipe away sin. Right? There's sin in Noah's own family almost immediately after they get off the boat. It's clear, in other words, that sin has affected everyone. It, it wasn't just Adam and Eve who suffered the consequences of their sin, but as a result of their sin, everyone else is also dealing with sin and its consequences. So much so that David can say in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David's not blaming his mother for his sin. He's not saying that his mother was sinning. What he's saying is, sin has been a part of me, even from the moment I was conceived. Sin has been part of my makeup from the very beginning. That is part of the consequence of Adam and Eve's sin. That we, are no, we no longer enter the world innocent, untainted by sin. We have a sin nature that we are born with, that we need help with, right? that we need deliverance from. That's why Paul can say what we read earlier in, in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now you would think if everybody got a fresh start, somebody would get it right. But nobody gets it right. Because nobody gets a fresh start. We're all tainted by sin. This is what we call... The doctrine of original sin. Not Adam and Eve's sin as the original sin, the first sin, but the consequences of that first sin for all of us we call, again, the doctrine of original sin. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 5 when he says, one trespass, and we know whose that was, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. He says, as by one man's disobedience, Many were made sinners. Right? Adam's sin means we are sinners too. But there's good news as well. He says not only that one trespass led to condemnation for all men, but in the same way he says, so one act of righteousness, Jesus's, leads to justification in life. For all men. As by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So if you hear that Adam's sin has consequences for you, and you think, well, hold on a minute, that doesn't seem fair. Well, think about the other side as well. Jesus' actions have consequences for you if you trust him. We're not going to complain about that not being fair, right? So we've got to be. Willing to accept the other side of that as well. What this means is that the pain and brokenness and death in the world and in our lives is the fallout of failing 
to trust and obey God. That's where all of that comes from. So, when we try to fix that pain, that brokenness, we try to heal those wounds, when we try to do that through further disobedience that is rooted in distrust of God, we should not be surprised that we are not making things any better. That we're making things worse. If you want to remedy something, you've got to get to the root of what went wrong in the beginning and do it different this time. Right? So the remedy is not just piling on more distrust of God, piling on more disobedience, continuing to go our own way. Instead, we need to turn back to God. We need to trust Him. We need to do what He says if we want things to get better. We should also not be shocked or surprised by the violence, corruption, arrogance, and hatred that is on display in the world. That's old news. There's nothing new about that. And as Christians who know from Scripture what went wrong in the beginning and what the consequences of that first sin are, we of all people should not be shocked when there is sin in the world. We should not even be shocked when Christians sin. Because we know we're going to. What should shock and disturb us is when people who claim to be Christians sin and seem not to be bothered by it. That's disturbing. But the fact that there is sin in the world, that people are broken, that people do sinful, even scandalous things... That's not coming out of nowhere. We know right where that's coming from. We should not be surprised by it, but neither should we make peace with it. Neither should we be comfortable with it. Instead, we should be pointing others to the remedy for it. Before we get to that, we need to think about some more personal consequences of the fall. It's not just that now everyone is born in sin. It's not just that the world is now broken. Paul even talks uh, in Romans 8 about how the creation itself has been subjected to futility and the creation is groaning. It's longing for the day when Christ comes back and and we are redeemed because creation is going to share in some way in that, that redemption, that renewal. So even the creation is affected by sin and has been since Adam's sin. But it has also affected us at every level. At every aspect of who we are is touched by sin. There's no, there's no part of us that is somehow uh, accepted, right? Or, or clean or untainted by sin. Think about your body. Is your body suffering the consequences of the fall, the consequences of sin? If your body doesn't feel like you think Adam's felt in the Garden of Eden, then the answer is yes. Right? What about your heart, your mind? In the, in the, we usually use the word heart to talk about our emotions, but in the Bible, the heart usually is sort of more like the core of who you are, and uh, sometimes can even kind of overlap with, our, with how we think about our minds. 
The Bible says that um, when we were in sin, in Ephesians 2, before God saved us, we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Sinful desires, of course. So our body, our mind is affected by sin, not only by pursuing sin, but also by the experience of you know, pain and disease and brokenness and all those things. What about our soul, our spirit? When God told Adam that if he ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that in the day that he ate of it, he would die. When he ate of it, did he die physically? No, not yet. But did he die spiritually? Yes, he did. Which is why Paul can say, again in Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were physically alive, but spiritually you were dead because of sin before God saved you and made you alive. Sin also affects our desires, our will, the things we want to do. Paul also talks there in that passage about how um, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And that's why once we become Christians, he says that we are to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. In other words, what I'm explaining here is, is another doctrine that we call total depravity. Now, th- this is a doctrine that often gets misunderstood. Total depravity does not mean everyone is as sinful or depraved as they could possibly be. Clearly, that's not so. You have friends and co-workers and neighbors who aren't Christians who sometimes act a lot better than you do, right? Or, or some of your Christian friends do. It's not saying that everybody is as sinful as they could possibly be. Instead, it means, the total part means every part of us. Mind, heart, soul, body, every part of us has been tainted and affected by sin. Now, it's important for us to reckon with that and to realize that because if Scripture tells us that we are born in sin with a sin nature and that every part of us is affected by sin, then is it possible, do you think, to be born into the world with a sinful desire? Yes. Does that mean that that sinful desire is not your fault if you give into it? No. We're all born into the world with sinful desires. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2. The sinful things that you desire might be different than the sinful things I'm inclined to desire, but we all come into the world bent and inclined towards sin as a result of Adam and Eve's fall. So, how about this? Is it possible to have a sense that something deep down inside of you is broken and painfully out of sorts? Yes. We should have no problem acknowledging that. We, of all people, should know how deep the root of sin is. Goes, And we of all people should understand and be sympathetic to the damage sin has brought on the world and on individual people. But we also know the remedy. And that's where we're going next. Before we do, I want to say one more thing about how, how we seek to 
moderate uh, or alleviate some of the effects of sin even now. Because we know the full remedy is not coming until Jesus comes back. Right? And we'll get to that in a moment. But I want to talk about the ways medicine, medical practice, can be a partial remedy for some of the fallout of the fall. And yet at the same time, can be used at times to pursue a false remedy. All right, now I'm stepping outside of my area of expertise here, right? But I want us to think from a Christian perspective, because this is, this is an important conversation going on in the culture, and so I don't want to ignore it, even though I'm a little apprehensive about stepping into this part. So if you have some pushback, just give me some grace and let's, we, can, we can talk about it. But medicine and medical practice, generally speaking, is a gift from God. I know there are certain aspects of medicine and medical practice that some Christians are extremely reserved about or concerned about. I'm, I'm not trying to get into all of that. But I, I think we can all agree that it is a mercy of God that if your appendix ruptures, somebody can take it out so that you don't die, right? So that you can live, right? So I like the fact that I can take medicine and alleviate a bad headache. You know, those are, those are mercies. Those are gifts from God and should be, if we're going to receive them, should be received as such, right? But medicine can be abused, right? It is not perfect. Just like every good gift that God gives, we can distort it. But it is a gift that can relieve some of the effects of the fall. I mean, one of the chief effects of the fall that God uh, talks to Adam about is the pain, and Eve as well, the pain that they are going to incur. Can we relieve some of the pain in childbearing? Some of the pain that comes upon our bodies because of our work of the, on the ground? Yes, we can. And that's a gift. That's a mercy. But not everything that we call medicine, and not everything that can be done medically, is healthy or beneficial or wise. So, the goal of medicine... I think from a Christian perspective, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting outside of my area of expertise, but I, I, think this is, I think this is faithful. The goal of medicine, generally speaking, from a Christian perspective, is to heal the body and to restore its full function as much as possible. That's the goal of medicine. It is not to manipulate, distort, or fundamentally change the body. What I, so let me give you a, a couple of examples of what I, I, I'm saying is okay and not okay. Is it okay to receive a pig valve in your heart so that your heart works better? Yeah. Is it okay to receive a pig's tail to be added onto your body? No. No. Now that might seem like a bit of an extreme example, but I... Don't actually think it is. And it gets to the heart of what medicine is for and what it's not for. Right? It is for helping your body do what it is supposed to do. So even, for example, if we go, to, go back to the appendix example. If your appendix ruptures and needs to be removed, you say, well, 
How is that helpful? You're taking a part of your body that God created out. Yeah, well, that part of your body is trying to poison the rest of your body, so you've got to take it out so the rest of your body can function well. That's what medicine is for. Right? That's what medical practice is for. So there are some ways that medicine can alleviate some of the brokenness and uh, distress and hardship and pain that we are experiencing, but there are also ways that people pursue medical practice to bring what they think will be a remedy that is actually a false use of medicine and a false remedy that will not ultimately relieve the brokenness that they are trying to address. And as Christians, we need to think about that carefully, articulate that faithfully and compassionately, because we want all people to experience the real remedy. All right, so let's talk about what that is. The ultimate remedy for any problem, right, has to address the fundamental issue. It has to address the root problem. If the root problem was a turning away from God, a distrusting God and trusting a lie instead, right, Satan said, at the day you eat of it, you will not die. And you'll be like God. God's holding out on you. That's why he told you not to eat it. There's distrust of God, turning from God, disobedience toward God. The remedy has to address that turning from God, that unbelief, that disobedience. That's what the gospel does. That's what salvation does. Now, when we think about salvation, we normally think um, about The moment somebody becomes a Christian and their sins are forgiven, usually that's what we're focused on when we talk about salvation. But the Bible's description of salvation is actually uh, much larger than that. It's not less than that by any means, but it is larger than that. To experience salvation, right? The Bible calls us to repent, that's to turn from our sin and turn toward God and to trust in Christ. That's our response. We've got to turn from sin and to Jesus. And when we do that, there are three aspects to the salvation that that we receive as a gift from God. The first part is what for if you're a Christian now, is that's in the past, right? That's already happened. You can say, I was saved. God has saved me. My sins have been forgiven. I am a new creature in Christ. I have been redeemed. That already happened, and nothing can change that. But there's also a present aspect to your salvation, and that's what we call sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Christ, the process of growing in holiness. This is what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2 when he says that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation, which you can't do. Right? God gives it, we can't earn it. But work it out. God has already saved you. He's already made you His. He's already made you new. So now you need to work on living out who God has made you to be. So in Ephesians 4, he talks about putting off your old sinful practices and desires and putting on the new self, embracing your new identity in Christ so that you are now imitating Christ and his character and his actions. You're showing love and mercy and kindness instead of being you know, arrogant and selfish and taking and all those kinds of things. So there's a present aspect to our salvation. And then there is a future aspect to our salvation that we call glorification. We have not yet received the fullness 
of what Jesus purchased for us on the cross. Now you have really received what He purchased for you on the cross. You are really saved if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ. Nothing can change that. But you are not yet fully and totally free from sin. That awaits the day of Christ's return. That awaits our joining Him in heaven, right? Where we're free from sin, our bodies are resurrected, and we are immortal, and we are no longer subject to sin or death or pain or any of those things anymore. And this is what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 1 when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's the past part. We have been born again. But we've been born again again to something, he says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You have not yet received, you have not yet seen, you have not yet experienced the fullness of what Jesus purchased for you on the cross. But when you do, every aspect of you that was tainted and affected by sin, your body, your mind, your soul, your desires, every aspect of you that was tainted by sin will be made new and will be subject to those effects of sin no more. What God made is good, but because of sin, it is broken. Many of the world's problems come from some form of sewing together fig leaves, recognizing there's a problem, and trying to fix it in ways that are ultimately inadequate and often unhelpful. But there is a better solution, one that lasts, one that doesn't turn us further away from God, but one that turns us back to God and that addresses all of our problems at every level. And at the center of that solution is Jesus, who's God in the flesh, who lived a life of trust and obedience that we didn't, who died the death that our sins deserved and rose again so that we could have life with him forever. You trust in Him, He gives all that to you. And because of that, one day, these words will come to pass that John heard and recorded for us in Revelation 21. He said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Remember, that's what they lost in the beginning when they were kicked out of the garden. So we're going to get back at the end. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new.